Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be shifting into a series on historical cycles and patterns and assessing where we are today and where we're headed. So this is going to roughly be material that comes from originally the interim period between season two and season three. So in that time period, I did some interviews with people like Vin Armani, Michael Vlahos, Allison McDowell, Julianne Romanello, and that might be it. There might have been one other. I can't remember. Uh, but all those interviews were about these types of things. And then I did some of my own episodes about historical cycles and patterns, different social cycle theories, uh, and my own framework that I had made, and lots of other things along these lines. So similar to the rest of season four that we are in right now, what I am going to do is take all of that disparate content and bring it all together and tie it all together as well as add some new stuff to it. So this is going to be a more macro perspective with even more content and more sources feeding into it. And by backing out and adding more to it, we can tie it all together in probably three episodes will be my plan at least. So since a lot of these are things that people are not very familiar with, well, especially long-term listeners will be familiar with quite a bit of it, what I'm going to do is break it up this way. This episode will be focused on specific people and their theories and perspectives on historical patterns, social cycles, cultural cycles, these kinds of things. So I'll go over all these types of things and about half of them are ones that I have talked about over the course of the podcast uh, in the past few years, but there are about half of them that are actually new or fairly new that I've only referenced here and there but never actually covered. So I'm going to tie all of them together, go over the basics as it applies to what I'm covering in this series. And then if you want more information and more detail, then go back to those episodes where I covered those. Those would be after season two, somewhere in between season two and three. I'm not really sure. I'll try to link those in the show notes for the next few episodes. But that's what I'll be covering today. Then in the next episode, what I plan on doing, I haven't recorded it, so I can't say for sure, but at least my plan is to then present... Uh, my own uh, framework for historical cycles, social cycle theory, that kind of thing, and actually apply and input all of these different things that I'm talking about today into that framework and apply it to how that plays out, how they stack on top of each other, how they overlap, how they reinforce each other, how they add to each other, all of these kinds of things, but bring it all together into one framework that I think will be very helpful and then in the third episode, at least according to plan, I will try to take the content from Vin Armani and Michael Vlahos and Julianne Romanello and Allison McDowell and anybody else I forgot. I will try to get all of, uh, I'll, I'll re-listen to all of those interviews and I'll try to take that content 
and condense it down to one episode where I cover the overlap between all of these things and how the content that they all talked about really applies, especially in light of where we are in the social cycle currently and talking about the future and technology and these kinds of things, there was uh, a theme that was going through all of those interviews, and it was all about historical cycles and patterns. It was all about technology, blockchain technology, the virtual world, where we're headed as a society, uh, technocracy, these types of things. So uh, that should be a really good wrap-up to uh, talking about this stuff. So again, this episode is specific people and their theories. Next episode ties it all together in one framework and add some of my own stuff to it. And then the next episode will be where we are and where we are going with input from those other people I had interviewed a year or two or however long ago. So that's the plan before we move on to something else. So for today, the uh, people that I will be covering include Ibn Khaldun, Ferdinand Tonis, Emil Durkheim, P.R. Sarkar, Petiri Sorokin, William Henry Smith, William Strauss and Neil Howe, uh, the Bible as a whole, Theodore Kaczynski, and Marshall McLuhan. So that is quite a few folks, and I should just go ahead and dive right in because there is a lot to cover. Now, all of these people did talk a lot about a lot of things. A lot of it's relevant to this podcast and content I've discussed. But what I am drawing on for this episode and the next few are specifically about social cycle theory, historical cycles and patterns, these kinds of things. So there is definitely much more, but I am only uh, trying to restrict myself to draw on those aspects that are very relevant. So to begin with, Ibn Khaldun, he was an Islamic philosopher from the 1300s, and a lot of people refer to him as one of the fathers of sociology and many other subjects in that vein. And one of the things that was very key that he noticed and did a lot of research on and wrote about in these kinds of things was about the rise and fall of cities, and especially compared to Bedouin tribes. What he saw was that there were these cities that were empty and in ruins. There were cities that were once great and now were small. There were cities that were in these different states, and it seemed like there was some sort of pattern to this. And as he looked into it, what he concluded was that basically you had these Bedouin tribal people that were more nomadic. They lived out in the desert and in the wild, and they were very strong. They were very self-sufficient. They were very hardy. They were very unified. They had a lot of societal cohesion, which he felt was very important. Societal co cohesion, tribalism, group solidarity, these things are extremely necessary, according to Khaldun. And he saw that these things were very high in these Bedouin tribes that were out wandering around. They were not the ones in the cities, obviously. In the cities, he saw that people were lazy, that people were 
a little spoiled. They were not very self-sufficient. They were starting to focus on things like art and planting trees that were pretty versus had utility and produced fruit. And he saw these things as signs of weakness. And so the people in the city had grown fat, lazy, and weak. And the people that were on the outside that were out in the wild, they were very strong and hardy and unified. And so what would happen, according to him, would be that this stronger group, more unified group, would see what the city has and what the city has to offer, and they would come and take over the city. And because they were so much more unified, they were so much stronger, they were so much hardier and more fierce and warlike, all of these things, they would overtake the city. And then they would rule the city themselves. But in time, and if I remember right, I think he said it could be in as short as two generations, but definitely within four the city would devolve back into what the original city was. So these strong, unified Bedouins would come into the city, they'd take over, and they would be the same strong, unified Bedouins at first. Then they would start to change. They would start to loosen up. They would start to relax. They would start to enjoy all of these benefits of having a walled city and these kinds of things. And then especially as their kids grew up, they grew up in a very different environment, not nearly as harsh as their parents did without a lot of the requirements that their parents had and things like this. And so, as you can tell, they got weaker and weaker. And then there would be another Bedouin tribe that would be out there that would be coming by. They would see this city that now, generations later, is, again, fat, lazy, and weak, and they would come and take it over, and the cycle would start all over again. And one of the things that he really called out here was that that this applied to cities, but it also applied to the rise and fall of civilizations on a more macro level. And he did call out that at the peak of a civilization, there was too much bureaucracy, there were too many taxes, there were too many laws, and there was too much sedentary behavior. These were the specific characteristics that he saw when a civilization was at its peak or when a city was at its peak. And this would be prior to its fall. And then there would be a a more warlike, stronger, hardy people that would come in and take over. So you could look at Rome as uh, the probably the most popular example of just about everything, where at at Rome's peak, and that peak lasted for a very long time. It's not like they peaked out for a few years or a decade and then went down. It was probably a few hundred years. But within that time period, the peak of Rome, there was a lot of bureaucracy. There were high taxes. There were a lot of laws. There was a lot of sedentary behavior. These things became very common at the height of Rome. And sure enough, they fell to peoples that came from the east that were thought to be more barbaric, more more warlike, more, uh, I guess, stronger and more self-sufficient, these kinds of things. And yet, just like Khaldun talks about, that's what happened with Rome, and it happened over and over again. And so that was something that he really focused on. Now, to move on to the next person, we have Ferdinand Tonnies. And he was around in, I guess, the height of his period, I think, was the late 1800s. And what he is most well known for was his theories around the idea of Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. And these could be translated as community and society. If I didn't already say this, he was a German philosopher. And so 
with these two uh, different aspects, he would look at a culture, look at a society, and he would say that it would trend either more towards Gemeinschaft or more towards Gesellschaft. And Gemeinschaft is that aspect of community. It is something that would be more rural, more of a village life, more traditional social roles. It would be built on personal relationships. And all of this would be uh, built upon natural will, which would be natural, spontaneous emotion and a sentiment when it comes to relationships and how people interact with each other. So that is the idea of Gemeinschaft, of a community group, of a community culture, we should say. And then Gesellschaft, this is the one that refers more towards society, and this one's different. This is not about natural will. This is about rational will. This is modern cosmopolitan society. There's a lot of government bureaucracies. There's industrial organization. And this rational self-interest and calculating conduct weaken traditional bonds and family ties, as well as things like religion. And in this Gesellschaft culture, interaction between people is more impersonal. It's more indirect. It's based on efficiency or other economic or political considerations. So that is the more society side. So when he looked at a people group, he would see that they were either focused around community and interpersonal relationships and these kinds of things, or they were focused around society, the Gesellschaft idea, where it was more about efficiencies and economics and politics and more indirect behavior, less personal relationships, less family ties, less tribalism, these kinds of things. So that is uh, somewhat similar to Khaldun's separation of the nomadic Bedouins and the city folk. You can see that there are some overlaps in that as well. But that was the the main thing that he called out. And he did say uh, he did apply this in ways to uh, populations as a whole, but then he did apply it to uh, a chronological system where chronologically overall humankind trended towards uh, Gemeinschaft at one point and then towards Gesellschaft as we got into more of the modern age. And so he talked about those big macro shifts as well. The next philosopher is a French philosopher, Emile Durkheim, and he talked about mechanical versus organic solidarity. And so he was looking at a similar thing, like all of these people, about societies, how to describe societies, how societies change, and how there's these cycles and patterns that they go through. And so when he referred to a mechanical society or mechanical solidarity, this was more about homogeneity, where people had like cultures, they looked similar, they had similar values, similar religions, all of these kinds of things, very homogeneous. Uh, they were a lot more traditional. They were typically more small-scale, and these were societies built around kinship and family ties, more of a tribal situation. And then on the other side, you had organic solidarity. And when you got to organic solidarity, this was more about interdependence through specialization, through complementarianism, and in 
they, it was more advanced. You get into the industrial scene. You had the sacredness of the individual. And he specifically uh, says uh, the, quote, cult of the individual. And that was a phrase that he used. And so it was like this religion where it was all about individualism. And so you can see how, again, there's a lot of overlap here where you have the more tribal, more communal, more uh, Gemeinschaft type of society, and that would be more of the tribal Bedouins. Uh, these are all roughly the same. There's there's at least a lot of overlap in all of these. And then in on the other side, you had, that was the mechanical. Then on the other side, you had the organic solidarity that should remind you more of city life or more of the gazelle shaft idea where it's more about a specialization of labor, people working in complementary ways. They have to work together. They're bonded by contract and law. It's a lot more individualistic, these kinds of things. And so uh, that was his, I guess, main theory that I'll draw on at least. The next person that I can go to is P.R. Sarkar. He was an Indian philosopher and drew a lot on the Hindu religion. And he was around in the early to mid 1900s, so a little more recent. He uh, talked a lot about archetypes that were based on varnas or roughly based on the Hindu class system. And this paired with uh, the Hindu idea of yugas or different ages of man. And so what he talked about was that uh, societies would go through these archetypes and these archetypes would be the ones that would be dominant in any given society at any given time. So all societies have these, all of these archetypes, but one of these will be dominant at different periods of time, and there will be different relationships between them. So the archetypes would be the commoner, the warrior, the thinker, and the merchant. And these are the archetypes that exist in every society, but in different ages, different ones are uh, more prominent and more dominant. So you could say that an earlier civilization, earlier time in human history, uh, the commoner was uh, the main group that drove human society. In this time period, it was about mysticism and the unknown. It was about harmony and fear as well of nature. This was an age of the worker, where it was all about material needs and service. And if you go to the yuga idea in the Hindu religion, this first age, they have different ages, and the timelines don't exactly overlap, but I'm going to talk about them at the same period in time. So Sarkar talked about the commoner, the warrior, the thinker, and the merchant, and how these would be cycles throughout societies, but that was on a time scale that was much shorter than the Hindu idea of thousands upon thousands of years for each age, but I will just talk about them in order together because they do fit pretty well. So in the Yuga idea, the Satya Yuga is the first one. It is the age of truth. It is a utopia. The land produces without labor. There is full virtue in humanity. And so you can see how this idea of like the Garden of Eden, and this is also one that fits well with the commoner. It's the common man, it's tribalism, it's mysticism, it's harmony, as well as fear of nature. And so things are all working together on that kind of level. Then you get into the age of the warrior. 
This is when you have chiefs and kings. You have this idea of conquering nature. This is a time period where they start developing more complex tools in order to do the things they need to do. It's not just about meeting your basic material needs. It's about uh, doing much more than that through these new tools and stuff. You have the warrior as the archetype that comes into play here, where you have order through power. And it's all about protecting society, caring for society, as well as taking over societies. It's both offensive and defensive, but it's all about the warrior. This is the age of the warrior. And as far as the Yuga ages go, this is the time period of a Yuga that is three-fourths virtue to sin in its ratio. This is a time period of emperors, of war, of agriculture and mining. So you get the same idea, starting to use the tools more efficiently to conquer nature, where you have warfare and the warrior, you have emperors governing larger civilizations, these kinds of things. Then in the next age you have the archetype of the thinker. And the thinker could also be looked at as like the priest or the intellectual, the academic. And in this age, things are much more material. So in that first age, things were very mystical. In the age of the warrior, it's probably a mix. And then in the age of the thinker now, uh, things are much more material. And in this age, it's more against the mystics. And in regard to nature, it's all about understanding nature. The thinker is all about rational, logical thinking, which is very different than mysticism and the immaterial world. So the archetype here, the thinker, is the intellectual, where you have power through ideas, and they're very inspirational. And this would be an age that fits with the yuga cycle of having half virtue, half virtue, half sin. And a description here would be that there is a lot of cultural corruption, there is immaturity, there is disease, and even more warfare going on. And this, I think, does fit fairly well with the uh, time period that we're talking about in this time period of the thinker. And you could think of maybe Rome as roughly that time period, very material, very logical and rational philosophy, these kinds of things that were really getting applied here. The final archetype that comes into play is the merchant The merchant in the time period of the merchant is a time when the material is shifting back into the mystical. So it's another mixed age. And this is more, uh, you could say it's more psychological versus mystical. It's, It's just immaterial as a whole. And as far as how they relate to nature, it's all about exploiting nature. That is the key of this age. That archetype of the merchant is all about exchange, all about markets. It's the idea of the capitalist. And that is the one that is dominant in this age of the merchant. And when you get into the yuga cycles here, this would be the final yuga, the Kali yuga, where it's one-fourth virtue, three-fourths or sin. So a lot of darkness and ignorance. People are slaves to their passions. People are liars and hypocrites. There's a lot of pollution. There's a lot of disintegration of the family unit. And this is the description that is given of that final yuga in the age of the merchant. So if you think uh, full-blown materialism, consumerism, 
uh, all of these kinds of things that fits in line with that age. And then what he says is that things just cycle back around. And so uh, that was his theory, and this would be the one... I'm not specifically going to talk about Vin Armani in this episode, but Vin Armani draws a lot on Sakar and his thoughts on the immaterial to the material and these archetypes that uh, cycle through societies. The next person to mention is Petirim Sorokin. He was a Russian philosopher, and he was also around in the early 1900s. And the key thing that I'll pull out from him is that societies shift between being very ideational to being idealistic to being sensate as far as how you could describe their culture. So the idea here is that an ideational culture is all about faith and revelation and mystery. The ideational is much more immaterial. It's about ideas. It's about being more conceptual, these kinds of things. The opposite of this would be a sensate culture, and that culture would be all about the physical and material pleasures and perspectives. This is about the senses. It's about what you can physically see and touch and feel and these kinds of things. And that is the perspective. Again, when you get back to uh, Sarkar, when we talked about the age of the thinker, that's all about uh, logic and rationality, these kinds of things. Think of Rome. That would be the sensate culture. And then in between these two, in between the ideational and the sensate, you have this idealistic phase where in this age, it is mixed and integrated. And so you have a mixed culture where it is part ideational and part sensate. And like the other philosophers, he does talk about how uh, these aspects always exist within a society. And this is true. I think of every single one of these people, they say that, that these are archetypes, these are concepts, these are structures that always exist. It's just a matter of which ones are more dominant. And at times, some will be much more dominant than others. And that's what we're talking about from this macro perspective. So there are always going to be ideational aspects to a culture. There are always going to be sensate aspects to a culture. But some cultures are extremely ideational, and some are extremely sensate. And so that's what he talked about is how these cultures would shift from one to another with this mixed phase in between. And one theme always controls the other, but both always exist. One is in control, and the other is used for control. And that's kind of how this system works. And one typically leads to the mix and the resurgence of the other. Now, the next philosopher is William Henry Smith. He was writing a lot back in the 1920s, so again, the early to mid-1900s, and he is an American philosopher. He talks a lot about the will of humanity, that humans are driven by these various desires and wills and drives. So he talks about how it's the will to live or survive or meet your base desires. That is one of the uh, strong wills that humans are driven by. Then you have the will to construct or to make or to build. Then you have the will to control or to master or to rule. And then you have the will to acquire, to take, to hoard. That These are the dominant uh, wills that 
are in all of humanity. And again, they all exist at all times, but at different times, one will take precedent over the others. So uh, these different aspects, these different wills are dominant at different times in different circumstances in different societies. And uh, he talked about how these were more of the base desires of humanity, the will to live, the will to make, the will to master, the will to take, that these are the base desires of humanity. But what sets humanity apart from animals and what really helps humanity stand out the most is that we have the will to know, and that is a different will. That is a different desire. It's one that's about uh, gaining knowledge and understanding and wisdom, these kinds of things. So you can go back to maybe Plato's Philosopher Kings. I guess I could have talked about Plato. He talked about the cycles of political societies, and yeah, that would have fit pretty well. But I did not include Plato. I've talked about him enough. So anyway, back to William Henry Smith. He talked about these different drives, and you have these ones that I mentioned, plus you have the will to know. And the way he broke down different ages of humanity, he talked about how there was the age of survival. And uh, in the age of survival, uh, people used the method of force, and it was all about the will to live, the will to survive. And then you had the age of religion, which was all about the will to make, the will to construct, to build. This is the age of cities and forming religions that would then rule over people. You have theocracies and things like this. And uh, this was all driven by the method of cunning. So instead of brute force, like the age of survival, this is more about cunning. And then as you get into the next age, this is an age of autocracy, which is all about the will to control, the will to master and to rule. And uh, this would be a mixed method age where both the use of force and the use of cunning are combined to rule over large populations. So think of uh, empires in that time period. Then as you get into the next age, you have the age of plutocracy. And in a plutocracy, it's all about the will to take, the will to acquire and to hoard. It's all about capitalism and the merchant class. So go back to Sarkar. This is the age of the merchant. And he says that this is using this mix of brute force and cunning to a small degree, but bringing in, in probably equal measure, this new method of skill. So in a plutocracy, one who is much more skilled in their craft and in business and in being a merchant and using their skill to dominate and to rule and to assert power, that person is going to rise to the top much quicker and be much more prominent. So this age is using not only force and cunning, but also skill then what William Henry Smith says is that then we either are or should be shifting into an age of technocracy. And so far as I know, he is the one that actually coined the term technocracy, even though I've never heard anyone else refer to him by name at all. So kind of odd, but I do have some of his writings from the early 1920s, maybe 1921 even, and that was before anything else I can find on technocracy, and it's either in the prelude to the book or in the book itself. He specifically says that he is coining the term, and as far as he knows, it does not exist. So uh, yeah, that's where technocracy comes from, and he says that 
In this age of technocracy, it's all about uh, using the method of skill. And at this point, humanity is going to focus on the will to know. And this is the one that kind of gets rid of all these negative aspects of these base desires to to live, to make, to master, to take. Instead of these things, it's about the will to know. It's the idea, again, of Plato's philosopher kings. It's, it's somebody that can be very objective, that can look at the data, that can figure things out, that can try to learn and apply things together, connect the dots, all of these, and use that to help uh, manage resources. And that, that's one of the big things about technocracy. And so that's what he talked about. So those are the different cycles that he brings in there and where he says that we are headed. And he, he viewed this as a good thing. In the 1920s, he was looking at, I think that would have been, I guess, after the First World War, and he saw how uh, the industrial sector really rallied around this wartime spirit. You had the nation that rallied around each other, became very unified for a common goal, and everybody uh, came together. Industry was ran very efficiently, very effectively, very mechanically, and he saw this as a very good thing. And you could do this and apply uh, using data and objective measures to do this on a permanent basis, and that would be his idea of the age of technocracy. Now, the next person to bring into this would be, I guess two people, would be Strauss and Howe, and they did the fourth turning cycles and generational archetypes. So for them, what they did is they looked at, again, these historical cycles and patterns, saw a pattern, and looked at generations, and generations would be roughly 50 years or so, and uh, generations would have different archetypes, and they saw these archetypes repeating. So kind of similar to Sarkar using the archetypes, they're using different archetypes, but uh, they use these archetypes to describe the generations that are in existence at any given point in time. So these archetypes would be the hero, the artist, the prophet, and the nomad. And so as they broke those down and fit those into a pattern, they fit it into this four, uh, this set of four turnings, this cycle of four parts. And with these four turnings, each generation, which would be about 50 years, would go through a different uh, cycle of turning. So you'd go through the first turning, second turning, third turning, fourth turning. By that time, it's been about 50 years, and you cycle back to another first turning and go all the way to the fourth within roughly 50 years and cycle back around to the first again. And that's how they saw things playing out. And with this, the archetypes would be the same. And the way they saw this was that the generations that exist in a given milieu of a society, they would be they would be growing up under certain conditions. Their parents would have certain archetypes, certain trends, certain behaviors and values. Those would affect how those children are raised and how they're taught. And the again, the environment that they are in as they grow up, what they see going on in society and culture and politics, all of these things. And that will help shape that generation. And so that's why these generations change, because a different type of parent, a different archetype of the parental generation is going to create a different type of child as that child grows up, because they have different parenting philosophies, they have different philosophies as a whole on life. And so that's how this works. And this all ties into the patterns that the culture and society are going through, as well as the patterns that the generations are going through. So the way they lay this out in the four 
turning fourth turning cycle theory, whatever you want to call that, uh, they say that the first cycle, the first turning, is a high period. This is the height of the four turnings, and this is all about a time period when institutions are very strong and individualism is very weak. This is a time period of confidence, of collectivism. You have, so again, you can think of what we just left off with, the age of technocracy and uh, what William Henry Smith saw as a time period of of this, of institutions starting to gain strength. And or he at least saw the potential of this. And when you look at the fourth turning cycles, you see that happening uh, after the First and Second World War. And that was a time period that led to a first turning and kind of similar to what William Henry Smith said would likely happen. But when you get into this, um, during this first cycle or this first turning, you have the nomads as the elders. So that nomad archetype are the people that are in the older generation. And the people in the midlife generation are, it's the hero hero generation. And so they are the ones, the heroes are the ones that are, you know, really bringing in this first age, this high, these strong institutions, these kinds of things. And then you shift into the second turning. And in the second turning, this is known as the awakening. And in this turning, the heroes are the ones that are now the elders, and the artists are coming into their midlife, where they're really having a dominant role to play in that culture and in that society. And again, the awakening, the artists, this is when institutions are attacked in the name of personal and spiritual autonomy. This is a time when people are tiring of social discipline. They are very focused on personal authenticity and idealism. And again, that probably fits this archetype of the artist fairly well, who is the dominant generation within this second turning. And this leads then to the third turning, In the third turning, it's labeled as an unraveling. And this is when the artists are now elders and the prophet archetype is now in this midlife uh, role. And that would be a very prominent role. And under the prophets in this period of the unraveling in the third turning, institutions are weak and distrusted. You have individualism that is now strong. You have society that they believe they must atomize and enjoy life. And again, it's all about individualism, which is the opposite of the first turning, which was all about weak individualism and strong institutions. Now we have weak institutions and strong individualism. And uh, this then leads directly into the fourth and final turning. And this is the period of crisis. This is when the prophets are elders and the nomads are in their midlife time period, kind of running the stage here. And this is a time that does not go very well. This is a time of national threats. This is a time when institutions are torn down and rebuilt You have civil authority that does revive. You have cultural expression that finds community purpose. You have individuals that start to identify as part of a group. And these are all trends that happen in this fourth turning. So it is a time of crisis. It's a time when a lot of things happen. 
and uh, with that, you have the the bad as well as the beginnings of the good. And again, as these institutions are rebuilt, and as you start having civil authority reviving, and uh, if you know me, you know that's probably not something I'm very fond of, but according to them, it's a very good thing. And this would lead us then back into the first turning, and then the cycle repeats itself. And this period between the first and the fourth Uh, turning, this takes roughly 50 years. And they looked at lots of different time periods. You had the period of the Reformation, which is an interesting one because I've talked about that quite a bit. Then you have the period that they label the New World, which lasts roughly 50 years. You have the Revolutionary period after that. Then you have the Civil War period. Then you have the period of Great Power And then you have the millennial period, and all of these are different cycles that go through these four turnings, and they kind of label what all of these are, how they start, what happens, who the archetypes are, and they lay this out very well in their books. So if you're more interested in that, you can go to that. But another interesting bit that I can call out on this, and this is one where I've got a chart here that shows some different aspects of characteristics that are occurring within each of these turnings. And I think that's something that is worth drawing out. So let me just go over this very quickly. And oh, also to let you know where we are, in case you didn't guess, we are currently in the fourth turning. We're currently in this crisis period, a time of uh, tearing down institutions and rebuilding and having a great reset, these kinds of things. And so uh, as we go through these different turnings in in a first turning, uh, families are very strong. The nurturing of children is loosening. The gap between gender roles is at its maximum. Ideals are very settled, and institutions are reinforced. The culture is fairly innocent. Social structure is very unified. Worldview is very simple, and a special priority is maximum community. A social motivator is shame. The sense of greatest need is do what works. The vision of the future is brightening, and wars are restorative. That is how a first turning is described. In a second turning, the family is weakening. Child nurturing is underprotective. The gap between gender roles is narrowing. Ideals are things that are now thought to be discovered. Institutions are not reinforced anymore. Now they are attacked. Culture is definitely not innocent. It's more passionate. Social structure, not necessarily unified. It's more splintering. Worldview is not necessarily simple. It's definitely complicating. Special priority is on rising individualism. Social motivator is conscience conscience versus shame. Sense of greatest need is to fix the inner world. And the vision of the future is very euphoric. Wars are now thought to be fairly controversial. Then you have the third turning where families are weak, just absolutely weak, and child nurturing is tightening. 
You have the gap between gender roles at its minimum. Ideals are debated and definitely uncertain. Institutions are now eroded. Culture is very cynical. Social structure is very diversified. Worldview is very complex. Special priority is on maximum individualism. Social motivator is not shame or conscience, but now guilt. The sense of greatest need is to do what feels right. The vision of the future is now darkening, and wars are inconclusive. And a lot of that does describe time periods that we are just coming out of or are still lingering in. Now, the fourth turning period is described as having families that are strengthening, child nurturing that is overprotective, the gap between gender roles is now widening again. Ideals are now championed. They're no longer uh, settled. They're no longer discovered. They're no longer debated. Now they are championed, and we have our ideals, and we're going to champion our different ideals. Institutions are founded in this time period. The culture is very practical. The social structure is gravitating, the worldview is simplifying, special priority is rising community, social motivator is stigma, sense of greatest need is to fix the outer world, vision of the future is urgent, you know, climate crisis, these kinds of things, and wars are total, you have total warfare. And this would be the period that they say we are in today. And this would be the fourth turning, the time of crisis, the time of breaking down and bringing things back up, a time of individualism, and all of these kinds of things. Now, to move on from Strauss and Howe, which is probably the most well-known in at least our current age, because they are fairly recent and fairly accurate. They're the ones that coined the term millennial. And moving from that uh, kind of feels a little off, but it's just where I put it, and this would be the Bible. So we've talked about uh, the Hindu religion and Hindu philosophy. Now, if you get into Christian philosophy and into the Bible, uh, they uh, the Bible sets things up through narrative and symbolism. And so although there is not a social cycle theory that is clearly laid out and defined and discussed within the Bible, at least not that I have found, uh, there is, uh, there, there are definite examples. There are lots of narratives, there's lots of patterns, there's lots of symbolism, and these happen over and over and over again. These play out through history, they play out through people groups and events that happen, as well as through discourse and teaching and these kinds of things. So the one that I will bring out will be one that typically starts with chaos. Then you have God intervening with water and spirit. Then you have God speaking structure into existence. And then you have temptation that then leads things right back to chaos and uh, water and spirit and structure and temptation and so on and so forth. So you have this cycle that occurs. And uh, to put this into a macro view that fits the biblical narrative, we have this beginning with creation where the earth is void. You have this period of voidness and uh, you could say chaos. There wasn't uh, structure and order. There wasn't creation yet. You have water that covered the entire surface of the earth and you have the spirit of God that hovered over. And then you had God speak and he speaks 
order and structure into creation, you have creation that happens, you have creation ordered, then you have the very first story, the very first narrative is uh, after creation is the Garden of Eden, which uh, ends in temptation. And uh, that would be the end of that cycle. Then you are left with a time period of, let's say, chaos. And within that chaos, you have this period of the flood. So society is in chaos. You have water that comes in and floods the earth. You have the spirit that dries the earth from these waters. It's, it's the wind, and the same word for wind is spirit in Hebrew, and that's what dries the earth. Then you have God speaking structure and order through the Noahide covenant and setting up a new structure. And then you have temptation all over again, as described by the Tower of Babel, and the forming of governments and cities and these kinds of things, people wanting to uh, be their own gods and protect themselves from God and do their own thing, just like Adam, the same temptation over and over again. And that leads us to the next cycle, which would be, uh, let's say, roughly the period of Moses. This would be when uh, the Israelites are now in slavery, a time period of definite chaos. Then you have the water aspect coming into play with crossing the Red Sea as they left Egypt. You have God hovering with the Israelites in a pillar of fire and a cloud. This would be his spirit that is there with them and speaks with Moses as well. And part of that is God speaking structure and order by giving the law, Mosaic law. And then right after this, they go out into the desert and they are tempted in the wilderness. And this leads right back to the next time period of Jesus. And uh, this would be the period of Yeshua when religion was now in a state of chaos. That was one of his main messages was that that, that religion had become corrupt And you have in Yeshua's ministry, when it starts, he is first around in this time period, then you have him getting baptized, and in this baptism, he's baptized in water, and then the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. It's not that a dove flew down, but like a dove, it's describing the way in which that happened, as a side note. And then you have his messianic ministry, where again, God speaking, that would be him teaching, and uh, you actually literally in the baptism, God speaks, this is my son, and then you also have Jesus beginning his ministry where he speaks. And then so the temptation, you could play that two ways as well, where the temptation could be right after his baptism. He is then, he goes into the desert and is tempted in the desert. Or you could say that he goes into his messianic ministry and then he has his final temptation before the cross as to whether or not he's going to go through with this. And uh, unlike all of these other examples, he does not fall for the temptation, which does not put uh, him or I guess Christianity into a state of chaos. Then the church is formed, and that is something that is said that the gates of hell will not prevail against, and it will continue, and it will never be defeated. And so that is the biblical narrative. Again, you may not believe the biblical narrative or anything like that, but I'm just giving you the patterns here. So that brings us to to modern folks that are both very interesting. And they would be Theodore Kaczynski and Marshall McLuhan. So with Theodore Kaczynski, otherwise known as Ted Kaczynski, otherwise known as the Unabomber, he 
talked about, well, let's just read one of his quotes that is probably the most popular. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been disastrous for the human race. And that was basically his whole message. And with this, he talks about how the uh, technological society would be the Industrial Revolution and its consequences, that the technological society is very destabilizing. It's something that is psychologically harmful for human beings. It makes life unfulfilling. It promotes useless activities. He calls them surrogate activities, which are things that don't really need to be done, but people do them anyway. Again, it's this idea of being fat, lazy in the city. Uh, this is uh, what he's talking about as well. And uh, these, he talks about the power process and how we all have this need to fulfill a power process, but that the surrogate activities artificially and incompletely fulfill the power process which is not a good thing. That's not what we want. We want a, a full power process to be fulfilled with things that actually matter and are they have purpose. Uh, he says that the technological society erodes human freedom. The technological society itself is a self-sustaining system. He says, quote, it has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function. So he talks about the technical society, technological society as an entity in and of itself, roughly. And he says that it will lead to the manipulation of humanity, that it is a system that's self-perpetuating, that you could say, uh, you could use media as an example, or the internet, or the virtual world, or the industrial revolution, that these things happen, and then uh, there are these other entities and structures and forces that are at play that start to get build up, built up based on the industrial revolution. You could say the automobile, and as the automobile starts to become popular, then that changes the way cities are drawn up, and it changes is the way uh, people get from here to there, the way people work, the way people socialize, uh, how roads are now a thing where people aren't really walking on them. Now they're driving on them. It just, it just changes all of society. And what's changing society? It's the technological society that has been created. It's not that people necessarily have the idea to, hey, let's change all this stuff. It's that the technological society in and of itself is this influencing system that results in a change in society and that as that progresses, it becomes a more and more dominant aspect of changing society. And he talks about how this will lead to drastic genetic alterations to humanity in order to adjust them to the system's needs. And whether or not that is actually why it will happen, it likely will happen. That's the whole idea of transhumanism. That's the idea of CRISPR technology, mRNA uh, medications, these kinds of things. It's this whole idea of using genetics and altering human genetics and the way the body functions. Uh, you can go back to Sarkar and talk about how we're now trying to manipulate nature. It's all about the will to know where we totally understand everything and can apply that. All of these things, again, uh, mesh together very well. And uh, so he sees this as not very good, because if you drastically genetically alter humanity, then you're, you no longer have humanity. And since it's being done in order to adjust them to the system's needs, it's all in favor of the system to spread and grow the 
technological society. And uh, another quote that I just got out of Marshall McLuhan book that is very fitting, and I don't know who it's from, but it's, we make our tools, then our tools make us. And that's kind of the idea here, which brings us into Marshall McLuhan, who was around much more recently in the late 1900s as well. And he is known for the phrase, the medium is the message. And uh, what he's talking about is that a new technology, a new medium is something that drastically changes the society that it is introduced to. And it's not about the content that is produced through that medium that has really nothing to do with what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that the medium itself drastically changes the way people think, the way people interact, the way societies are structured, the way people uh, structure their perception of the world, their worldview, all of these things. These things are drastically changed by the technology itself, by the medium itself. The medium itself is the message, not the content that we think of as the message. And he looks at a technology in a few different ways. He asks, what does it enhance? What does it reverse? What does it retrieve? And what does it make obsolete? And uh, these are different characteristics that you can use to assess a certain technology, see where it's coming from, how it's changing society, and what it's leading towards. And a lot of this has to do with the difference between something that is more uh, audible versus visual, visual, something that is more linear versus immaterial. And this is what I really draw out from his work that I think is very applicable here. And he talks about how culture is mostly visual or haptic, or it is mostly optic or audible. And uh, these aspects of culture that will be dominant at one point in time or another, they exist at all times, just like all of these, but one will be dominant. And as a technology shifts and as a technology comes into play that is a major disrupting technology, this technological change will have dramatic societal change that comes with it, and typically large-scale warfare. This is the time period of the Reformation and the movable-type printing press and the Thirty Years' War. This is the period of the digital age and warfare across the Middle East and around the world. You have the Industrial Revolution and a lot of warfare that occurs around then and a lot of social change. These are things that, again, are patterns and cycles that continue to happen. But when he describes a, a perspective of being more haptic or visual, he, he talks about the Greek alphabet and the in introduction of the written word period or the written alphabet. And as you have a written alphabet, the way people think, the way they structure their thoughts, it's, it's written down, it's visual, it's something that you can read, it's something that you can write, where each letter means a certain thing, each word means a certain thing, each, each sound is made by a certain visual representation on the paper. And uh, you can go back to the philosophers that talk about how writing is a definite negative technology and people are going to, they're not going to be able to remember things anymore and you're not going to have the, the interaction between the uh, orator and the listener where they could before ask questions and elaborate and all this stuff. Now you're just going to have this written document and you're not going to be able to question the author. You're not going to get any more out of it. You might have misinterpretation, all of these kinds of things. So writing has not always been looked upon as a very positive thing. But uh, Marshall McLuhan, the way he talks about this is that that uh, led to 
society as a whole being more visual, being more linear, being more structured and hierarchical, being more material. And it was about uh, this aspect of being rational and logical. And again, this fits with some of these other uh, things that I've talked about here, these different cycles and time periods. But with this, he says that, um, that that's kind of the system that we've been under since the time period of the Greeks and Rome and definitely into modern times. But now as we have this new medium, this digital medium, this new technology, this is changing because this technology is not something that is visual and haptic. You can talk about the, uh, the idea of the radio and how that is definitely audible you are listening. So you go back to early tribal societies, and they had oral history. They told their stories orally. They remembered them and would talk about things, discuss things, and that's how things were done. They weren't reading. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't write letters to each other. It, it was, again, more audible, and this has uh, some major effects on the society and how people interact with each other, how people view the world. And then things got more visual, more linear as you have the written word and you start having all of these things that are more concrete, more visual, more linear, more rational and logical. And then as you get this digital format, things are going back to being more audible, being more uh, prone to interpretation, more open, more... I guess, uh, more immaterial, more mystical. So it, again, fits with some of these other cycle theories. But, uh, but that's what the digital technology uh, brings to society. And we're coming out of a society that has been very linear and logical, and we will be shifting into a society that is more audible, mystical, immaterial. And uh, that a large part of that, at least, comes from this technological change of the introduction of the digital medium in the virtual world. And he was writing this before the internet, but uh, he definitely describes the effects of the internet very well. And so uh, that's what he brings us to, which then brings us to the modern time period. And that's where I will stop with all of these different uh, social cycle theories and what I'll do, uh, again, what I plan to do in the next episode is to lay out my framework for the ages of man. So let's go chronologically. And I've got four or five ages, I think five, because I think I include what we're headed into. And so we'll look at how each one of these various social cycle theories, historical patterns that were uh, laid out and discussed, these uh, theories about technology and all of these things. Uh, when you map all of these different things from all these different people and all these different times and places, map all of those onto the Ages of Man framework, then we can fit them in chronologically and really see for sure that they all line up, they all play out, as they say, see how it describes history, how it uh, sheds more light on what we know of history and brings more light to some other aspects and influences and things like that. But also, it shows where we are heading and what this is leading into. And that's what the episode after next will get into is where we are, where we're headed. And so uh, that's where we're headed in this podcast. So with that, I will stop here. I should mention that I was interviewed on another podcast recently called Etch the Edges. 
I will again try to include a link to that in the show notes so long as I remember. And that was one where he was asking me about my background and how I got into things and uh, all of the things that I research and talk about. And we got into everything from historical patterns, I think somewhat, to conspiracy, to the state of the world and culture and all kinds of stuff. But if you're interested in that, that will be there. I used to post every interview I did, every appearance I had made on another podcast on the Patreon feed. Uh, You should still have those, but I don't have whatever the past probably three or four are on there. So I kind of forgot that I did that. So I will try to get those up there at some point. So if you are a paying supporter, then you will have access to all the appearances I've ever done on other shows, as well as easily being able to access my own. So with that, I should say thank you very much to people that are financially supporting the show. I really appreciate that. That is something that is extremely helpful where I can actually pay for this podcast from your support instead of having to do it all on my own. So thank you for that. Thank you for just being a listener. Thank you for any reviews or ratings that you've left. If you have not done so, please do that. And I guess that's it. I'll be back next time with more about social cycles and historical patterns and all of this wonderful stuff. So until then, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.